Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. On this week's episode, we're spotlighting issues of food justice with lawyer Savvy Horn. Savvy is the executive director of the Land Loss Prevention Project, a nonprofit law firm under the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. The project specializes in supporting underserved farmers with issues of land tenure, and Savvy has been a powerful voice in advocating for their rights at local, regional, and national levels. Here's her chat with podcast manager Josh Kimmelman. Welcome to Chewing the Fat. My name is Josh Kimmelman, your host for today's episode. Joining us today is attorney Savvy Horn, executive director of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers Land Loss Prevention Project. Welcome, Savvy. Thank you. I'd like to start with something quite broad. To me, the people and places at the core of your work with the LLPP pose a central question about what you do. What has drawn you to fight for rural livelihoods? What has propelled me forward and grounded me is how the Land Loss Prevention Project came into being, which was in 1983 in the midst of the farm crisis in the country, in the Midwest, but also in the South, where disproportionately African-American farmers were going out of business. So when the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers came together to look at the problem, which for them, most of them had been just one generation removed from the farm, they began to look around and notice what others were doing, and particularly they looked at the model that was emerging from the deeper South through the work of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and the Emergency Land Fund. I'd like to note that like most progressive bar associations of the civil rights era, their members were engaged in activism for restoration of African land ownership in Southern Africa, where the most racialized and oppressive land ownership pattern and control laws were found in South Africa and Zimbabwe. I think they believe that the vestiges of segregation, as noted through Jim Crow, was very similar to those structural laws in Southern Africa. For me, it was the grounding in the Black Belt, the idea of working in an area that was part of this traditional Black Belt that spans from Southern Virginia to Louisiana that was part of a system of plantation slavery noted for racial oppression and economic dislocation. So the idea of being able to work through that legacy and to assist farmers was very appealing to me. And you mentioned Zimbabwe and South Africa right now, and you, as I understand it, worked in Zimbabwe in the past before your work with the LLPP. I was a classic trailing spouse syndrome, so I followed my husband on a Fulbright. He was at University of Zimbabwe, and I was auditing courses there on world development and met some really brilliant minds, particularly Professor Margaret Matanda, who's now University of Australia, Sydney, looking at smallholder farms, really influenced my decision to further explore rural development in Zimbabwe. And I 
volunteered with the only African-American Southern Africa-based NGO, which was AfriCare, and began to do field trips, looking at cooperatives, working with oil seed cooperatives, looking at contracts, helping them to organize. And it was at that point I began to see the, the very skewed land ownership patterns with estimated 20 million euro Africans owning 98% of land rights and 95% of water rights. And it just struck me that that was not a sustainable way of living and doing business, and particularly because it was an agrarian-based society and the Africans were just basically left to be just subsistence farmers. Recently, the Good Food Jobs blog featured a profile of your work written by actually a YSFP alum, Sophie Mendelson. And the profile mentions a number of things I'd love to ask you about. I'd like to start with the Farm Bill. What's up with the newest iteration of the Farm Bill? How does it affect your work with land justice? And in particular, what are your concerns and some concerns the farmers you work with have Well, in this 2018 Farm Bill, I would like to give a shout out to the Rural Coalition and some of the allied organizations like National Family Farm Coalition, Oklahoma Historical, and others in pulling together a coalition, which also included the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, to get us, I believe, one of the best farm bill that we have seen in a very long time. We now have a much better funded program for the Section 2501 program, which historically has been the program that assists socially disadvantaged farmers, veterans. Now we have more funding and We also have more funding jointly with the Beginner Farmer Rancher Program. For me, that was a sea change in terms of linking those programs, better funding those programs, and inclusive of that is the opportunity that more farmers and farm organization can participate and strengthen farmers and the local rural food system that is becoming very pivotal in economic development in rural communities. The Farm Bill also had a major sea change in terms of the land rights space. I don't think they particularly would term it like that, but under the leadership of the Rural Coalition, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and our organization, we were able to get language into the Farm Bill. The Uniform Law Commission joined us and helped in terms of clarifying the provision of the Uniform Partition statue with five southern states, I believe, inclusive of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, have adopted. And this particular legislation assists the heirs who are owners of undivided interests or tenancy in common to acquire clear title or more substantial rights in the property descended from their great-grandparents, usually 
to stabilize it and give family members who are interested in continuing agriculture an ability to legally pull that in place. So using that grounding and thinking, we were able to work with congresspeople and senators to fashion the legislation that now would assist air property farmers through the Department of Agriculture. So where you have enabling legislations in states, such as that Uniform Partition Act, the farmer can now be able to get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to grant a farm number, and that then opens the door, because you're now recognized as a farmer, to the other programs of the Department of Agriculture. So that, to me, is a sea change in air property farmers to be able to access USDA programs. And it also offers an opportunity for other states who don't have this particular legislation to begin to adopt this legislation. So we're hoping that there will be a groundswell of support in other states to make sure that air property farmers can get into USDA programs by having enabling legislation that makes it possible. And are there any other aspects of the Farm Bill that you'd like to talk about in regards to how it affects your work with land justice or the farmers and landowners that you work with? Well, clearly the fact that farmers now have more access to programs and the programs are better funded at the Department of Agriculture. Also, the transparency in terms of review process that will assist farmers. I think farmers who want to engage more in local food system work, they, the, those local food and marketing programs have been strengthened. So what I do see is that there are more programs that have been strengthened and better funded that will help farmers and assist uh, local community-based organization and non-governmental organization working in agriculture to assist resources to help the farmers so that it would be uh, a situation where resources are available to farmers and others working in agriculture to better assist the farmers. So I would think that in the end, the farmers could benefit in a much more substantial way than in the past. On the land rights space, of, of course, getting the heirs' property provision into the farm bill, that is still a, a legal process. But when I think of land rights, I think of more activist-based uh, processes as pushing uh, social justice and policy levers. I would like to uplift an organization in Durham, North Carolina, which is based at the city of Durham, county of Durham line, and that is Earthseed LLC, a collaboration of farmers and educators who are looking to develop models of community-controlled food system through land ownership. These were next-generation farmers and activists, and they were able to pool 
resources to acquire up to about 30 plus acres of land. And the way in which they want to reposition the land is to provide land to community-based organization, food development organization of people of color and African-American, LGBTQ community people to organize food-based, community-based businesses. They have developed a decentralized way of looking at land, which is a much more collaborative model. And I would just like to give a shout out for that approach because it takes us more into that land rights space in which there is ownership, but there's a more collective model of collaboration. And I think that is worth uplifting. I do know that on the more land rights activist space that other organizations are looking at instances in which there is land grabbing by pension funds and what would that mean in terms of upsetting the social and cultural rights of land in rural communities. So that is an ongoing dialogue We have noticed this movement abroad, but it is coming to the U.S., and there has been some land, massive amount of land, that are now being held by pension funds and others. So we now need to figure out what does this mean if you remove land in that manner and you kind of greenwash it on the sustainability because, you know, we're acquiring the land and it's not being developed in a certain way. How does that help? in this space where there's greater need for land on the part of the new and beginning and young farmers. And you also are in a place where there's going to be in the next five to 10 years, a massive shift in land ownership to the next generation. What does that mean in terms of the struggle around access to land, particularly the young farmers who want to grow local foods and be part of a local food economy. So I think the land rights space is more nuanced about, well, how do we create more land for people who want to engage in agriculture? How do we make it work so next generation, new and beginning, and urban farmers can have that access? So that really brings me back, actually, to the organization you just mentioned based in Durham, Their model really reminds me of actually a question I was hoping to ask you that in some ways you've already answered, which was how you see land and coalition building as connected and important to socioeconomic justice and black empowerment. Instead of having you answer that yet again, because I think you've answered that really eloquently, I'd love to just ask you about an organization and a historical moment that you mentioned to me before this podcast, New Communities. Could you speak about what New Communities is and was? Well, I would like to reground New Communities. You know, when we look at the literature, New Communities, we just think of Southwest Georgia, but we don't really think of the movement that led to the founding of new communities. It was really a multiracial coalition of folk. You had a swan from the Shoemakers Center in Western Massachusetts. You also had the Rural Advancement Fund of the National Sharecroppers Union. You had civil rights lawyers who were a part of this. And the thinking came about as 
black folk were noticing that if we're really going to make a difference in southwest Georgia, we needed to own more land and it needed to be concentrated in a way that we can replant a community. As part of that thinking, the leaders, and I could just uplift Reverend uh, Charles Sherrard and Shirley Sherrard, who traveled with a group to Israel to look at kibbutz and muchavim and look at their more collective model, which is inclusive of farming, housing, and educational and health care facilities. And they came back and quietly acquired the land through some very skilled lawyers in Albany, Georgia. And they were able to acquire several thousand acres of land and planned a community that included the farm, the housing, and over the years encountered strident resistance from the state of Georgia and local USDA officials and agencies, and eventually had a moment in which they lost the farm, which is devastating to all. And I say a moment because everything has a very cyclical way of happening, but it was a moment that froze in the hearts of the organizers of this collective effort and then bloom again at the end of the massive federal lawsuit brought about by black farmers, women, Latino farmers, the Pigford, Native American farmers. They all kind of coalesced around race and gender and won a major lawsuit against the Department of Agriculture based on race-based discrimination. Near the end of that process, Ms. Shirley Sherrard had a light bulb moment that they too had a claim. It took 10 years before it was settled. They got several million dollars and from that resource was able to purchase a plantation that they now repositioned as Resora, which is now a resting place, a healing place, and a very active organic farming business and pecan groves that are now a attracting economic development around local foods in Albany, Georgia, and in surrounding counties. Did you say that it's the 50th anniversary of New Communities? Is that correct? Yes, and we need to celebrate it. And I just would like to uplift the fact that W.E.B. Du Bois in his book, The Soul of Black Folk, in that particular book, there was a chapter of the Black Belt. And we found out that W.E.B. Du Bois stayed at that plantation, which has now been owned by the new communities, when he was researching and writing the chapter of the Black Belt. And when you read that chapter, it reads like it was just today, because some of the same social oppressive and racialized attitudes on land ownership and Black economic development is still prevalent in Southwest Georgia. I would like to reground Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois as our first rural sociologist as a result of that. And I recall the reprint in Portside in which it reprinted W.E.B. Du Bois' Behold the Land speech, where it was like over 80 years ago, 
He foretold a period of a new cooperative agriculture on renewed land owned by the state with capital furnished by the state, mechanized and coordinated with city life. In this vision, he saw a chance for young men and women of devotion to lift again the banner of humanity and walk toward a civilization which will be free and intelligent, which will be healthy and unafraid, and build in the world a culture by black folk joined by peoples of all colors, all races, without poverty, ignorance, and disease. So I see this particular speech foretold, for me, the rise in urban agriculture and coalition building around agriculture, social justice, land justice, rights space. And I feel that the National Movement for Black Lives and those groups that are part of the National Black Food Justice Alliance speaks to the vision of W.E.B. Du Bois. The coalitions that are collaborating with this new black social justice movement around land also speaks to that. And I'd like to uplift HEAL, which is a health, environment, agriculture, and labor coalition, as one example. And clearly, the gains that came about in the Farm Bill to better assist all of us through the efforts of the Rural Coalition and the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So we see that there is a coalition of movements on that frontier of agriculture and social justice and land rights that's emerging and merging in terms of doing something around the corporate control and racialization as used by the Haas Institute at Berkeley on U.S. agriculture and food and fiber system that we now have in place. So I see a very strong movement emerging and thinking that will help us to deal with climate justice in a more sped up way because people are actually building in the climate justice piece into their activism and thinking on the land rights, the food rights space. We've traditionally been ending our Chewing the Fat episodes by having our guests debunk a myth about something that frustrates you. What is some sort of myth that you'd like to bust? I would like to bust the myth that people of color, black people, Native Americans are new to a community food sovereignty notion. It has always been driven by local culture within communities as they organize themselves around food, the growing of food, and food ways, how we prepare the food. And I think not to see those communities as part of community food sovereignty is a mistake. Just as it was when black farmers were thought as not being sustainable agriculture farmers, when in fact they were because they didn't have the money to buy the chemicals. Savvy, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Chewing the Fat. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To learn more about Savvy and the Land Loss Prevention Project, please visit landloss.org. This episode was produced by myself, Ashia Johnny, Josh Kimmelman, and Thomas Hagen. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Program support by Jacqueline Monod, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. 
Special thanks to Pearson College for working with us to bring Savvy to campus on MLK Day. If anything said today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. For now, wishing you goodbye and good eats.